Hello, my friends, and welcome to another Robcast. This is part two of Politics and Guns. And uh, part one, episode one, was called Politics is a Good Word. And uh, what's really, really important to me is that we all begin with this understanding that politics is how we organize ourselves for our common good. And when you begin to think about it in those terms, you realize there's an endless tension at the heart of politics. And in this episode, which is called The Endless Tension, I want to simply walk through this idea that the tension that is at the heart of politics is good and necessary and vital. So politics is a good word, and the tension at the heart of politics is good and necessary and vital. So here's what I mean. I'm going to tell you a ridiculous story as a way of getting at why this is so important for all of us to embrace. Uh, so here's the story. Let's say that a hundred of us are in a plane crash, and we all survive. So there's a hundred of us, we're in a plane, it goes down, but we all survive. We landed in a swamp on the side of a mountain. I don't know how that happened, but it was amazing, and we all lived. And so we're stranded on the side of a mountain, and we're hungry. So in our hunger, we decide some people should go out and look for food. Okay, well, let's all go out and get some food. And we realize, wait, what if rescue planes fly overhead? Somebody should be there to make noise, to fire flares, to jump up and down, to try to get their attention. Whatever it is, we realize we can't all go searching the side of the mountain for food. So how about some of us stay and some of us go look for food? Great. Excellent plan. By the way, who decides who stays and who goes? And... Then when the group that does leave to go look for food, who decides where they should go? North, south, up the mountain, down the mountain, to the right, to the left, east, west? Who decides who goes and who stays? How many go and how many stay? And then who decides when the group that does go how they actually go about finding the food and which direction they go? And is there anything from the wreckage they should take with them in order to collect the food? So right away, who makes these decisions and who decides who makes these decisions? So let's say the group that goes out to find the food does find food and they find, let's just say randomly, they find 79 ears of corn, 109 tomatoes, 45 onions, 2 bushels of cilantro, 13 ghost peppers, 24 jalapeno peppers, and 17 serrano peppers. Oh, come on now, you know what happened. They find the stuff to make salsa. Oh my word, what are the odds of this? So now we have all these questions because we can now make salsa. This is going to be so great because we're hungry and now we have what we need to make salsa. But how much salsa can we make? And how much will each person get? And what about the people who aren't helping? They're just laying there with an injury. Do the injured people get the same amount? Well, of course they do. Well, what about the people who hiked into the woods and found the food? Do they get the same as the person who stayed with the wreckage? Well, yeah, sure. But what about the person who didn't go into the woods, but who was at the wreckage, but didn't really do anything? They're actually, it turns out, just lazy and aren't doing a thing to help out. Do they get the same amount as the person who hiked way up on the mountain and found the jalapeno peppers? And then, if we make the salsa, what about 
the amount that each person gets. What about larger people? What about adults? What about people with higher metabolisms? Do they get more? But what about people who are smaller, who, who weigh less? What about children who don't eat as much? Do we divide up? Does every person get the same exact amount? Or do some people who need more calories get more? And who decides who gets what? How are we going to share this salsa? And who is going to make those decisions? Okay, so let's, let's say we're all ready to chop up the onions and the tomatoes and we're all ready to slice it all up. And then somebody says, why salsa? Who decided that we should even make salsa? There's other things we could make with these ingredients. And the corn, we don't have to make chips for the salsa. We could make something else. Is this just because some of you like salsa? How come, how exactly many of you do want salsa? And maybe we should form a committee because what if there's some other, anybody here a chef, anybody here a cook? Are there anything other, other things? Maybe we should come up with a list of possible things we could make and then have everybody vote on what does most amount of people want us to make with these resources. Can you see how simply getting us all a little food might be a little complicated? There is limited food, limited resource. How are we going to share this limited resource among us? And then think about this process of coming to some conclusions and like actions that we're actually going to take. Think about in this discussion, and so we have all of us sort of weighing in and we're discussing and we're back and forth and different people are presenting different perspectives. What if at some moment somebody and three of their friends simply said, here's the deal, we're going to win. We're going to win. Our perspective is going to win. The moment somebody shifted into who will win and who will lose, we will have lost the plot, Correct. Because the fundamental driving engine of the whole thing is figuring out what works for the most amount of us. The moment we shift into who will win and who will lose, we're in trouble. And so we argue and we discuss and we make our points, but the only way it will work is if we all enter into this flow of give and take. We give a little, we get a little there will be a tension at the heart of our discussion there on the side of the mountain about the salsa. And it is this. There is a limited resource, and not everybody is going to get exactly what or how much they want. But if everybody moves towards everybody else, and everybody is willing to give just a little, there is a chance that we can make something work between us, right? But it will only work if we're willing to compromise. Yeah, see, that's the word, isn't it? Now, I want to talk about compromise. I want to talk about flip-flopping. I want to talk about convictions and tension. And then I want to talk about the idea of the loyal opposition. So first, a bit about compromise. If you were to listen to many politicians in their speeches, you would think that compromise is a bad word. Have you ever heard a politician say something like, I will never, ever compromise? And everybody cheers like that is a good thing. But here's the thing. At the heart of the political process, 
compromise is how the whole thing works. It's the engine of the entire process. If you wade into this saying, I am going to get what I want, and I will not settle for anything other than exactly what I want, you fundamentally don't understand how the whole thing works. Nobody gets everything they want. Everybody leans into the center and gives up something. Imagine if you charge in saying, I am right. You have to come all the way over to my side. I will never compromise. It will never work if that's the posture that somebody brings to this process. So the question then lurking within compromise is convictions. How much do you give and how much do you insist and stay firm in your position? Let's say you want things at a 10 and they're at a 4. So you want things to be a 10 but they're at a 4. Will you refuse to participate until everybody comes to 10? Which will never happen, by the way, right? So you can stay there and say, I refuse to have anything to do with this until you will all come to 10. Or you can engage and you can work to maybe move things to 5. And then, if it really is a better way, maybe people will come to 6. So you can see when the leader of a political party says that they are going to say no, no matter what, to whatever the other party's president puts forth, that isn't helping. The goal is to be the kinds of people who understand there's a shared good here and can move towards each other and find some sort of common ground. Your job isn't saying to say no if you are engaged in the process. Your job isn't say to say no to every single thing the people on the other side suggest. Your job is to find common ground and all of you to work together to find solutions that move the whole thing forward, even if it's moving things forward inch by inch by inch. Now, side note. I wonder for those of you who just the idea of politics makes you want to throw up. I wonder if sometimes what drives you mental about the political process is when you have this sense that the people you have elected to represent you are acting like immature children who won't engage unless they get what they want. Have you ever had that sense? These are very, very smart, educated, often wealthy people insisting that, well, until we get what we want, and you think, wow, that actually sounds like children. That maturity in the political process is understanding this isn't because a person has no convictions, it's simply because their convictions are so grounded and firm that there is a tension at the heart of this and all of us may have to give a little to move forward. So there's a bit about compromise. Now, number two, flip-flopping. And this makes me so cranked up, I can't even believe it. Sometimes a candidate will change their position or a politician will have seen an issue one way and then years later they will have seen the issue another way. And often what happens is their opponent says, well, you said this and then you said this. We don't know where you stand. And the accusation is flip. they flip-flopped. I'm sure you've heard this phrase before. So-and-so is a flip-flopper. Now, sometimes people actually do that because 
there was more money in taking a different position or more, whatever it is, to keep, they're just trying to keep their job, whatever it is. But, 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 let's think about this in positive terms. Do you see things exactly like you did five years ago? Do you see things, do you believe exactly like you did 10 years ago? Do you live your life exactly like you did seven years ago? No, you don't. Why? Because you've grown and learned and evolved. You've had experiences that have changed how you think and act. They have this great phrase in the military. In the military, they have this phrase, we have new information. Essentially, we were headed in that direction, and then we learned that there's nobody in that direction, so we went in a different direction because we have new information. And what happens in life is you get new information. And so you used to be heading that direction, but then you turn, and now you're headed in a different direction because you have new information. So as you think about the upcoming elections and you think about people running for president and you hear the accusations against them and you hear them tell about their positions and where they're coming from, in some senses, what you want is somebody who openly talks about what they've learned and what they've seen. If somebody, like if somebody has served in Congress, let's say, and they've served for 20 years, and they haven't grown at all in one area, is that really the kind of person that you want leading us? What you want is somebody with great conviction, somebody who's honest and straightforward, who says, I have been learning as I have engaged with people, as I've traveled the world, as I've been involved in making policy. We actually want people who are growing and learning and evolving. Now, compromise, flip-flop. Now, tension. Let's go back to the mountain. Because, by the way, is anybody here hungry for salsa all of a sudden? We're all going to do our best to divide the salsa. But then, what if someone suggests, let's send out a different group in a different direction, and maybe they'll find some other food and bring something very different back. And so let's say they go back, but they come back, and what they found are rutabagas and yuccas and beets and a moose. <laughs> you like that, Kristen? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's say they bring back, and we're like, what? Okay, so here's the thing then. Some of the guidelines that we set up for the salsa may work really well for this new resource that's come into the camp. But some of it may not, because what worked for, for jalapeno peppers might not work for the dead moose. So we will have learned all sorts of things in the process of making the salsa, or maybe we, need, we maybe in the end we chose not to make the salsa. But then when they bring back a rutabaga, a yucca, a something, I don't even know what the third ingredient was, and a moose, there are a number of things that we will have learned that may apply to this new resource, but there are a number of things where we may have to have a whole new process to figure out what do you do with a moose. So at the heart, I should call this episode what to do with a moose. So at the heart of our discussion will be guiding convictions about what works and, and what's proven true, but held in tension with an openness of spirit to figure out these new circumstances together. 
So you can see where there's going to be these guiding convictions that are firm and grounding, and yet also a certain sort of openness to this new situation. So at the heart of the political process is just awareness that we are figuring out our common life together. For example, prohibition. A while ago, almost 100 years ago, the government outlawed alcohol. That didn't work. Created violence, black uh, markets. We tried making alcohol illegal, and it didn't work, so they changed it back. So you will see the loosening and tightening of legality is a constant tension that a, a nation, a state, a people group have to navigate. How much, how many things should be forbidden, illegal? How many things should be permissible? Right now we're having a massive sort of nationwide, here in the States at least, and if you're, you're listening internationally, uh, in the States, obviously, I'm sure you've heard huge discussion about what drugs should be legal. And uh, we have an ungodly amount of people in prison for nonviolent minor drug possession charges. And it's awful. And they shouldn't be in prison like they are for those possession charges. It's killing us. It's killing them. And so many have said we should legalize uh marijuana especially, and states are doing this, and they're reaping all sorts of tax benefits, and people are saying, we should change this. Or the larger war on drugs, there's like more and more people are realizing that the war on drugs is a war that we lost. We lost it. And it is costing so much. Our relationship with Mexico, et cetera, et cetera, this is nothing new uh, to many of you. So the question becomes then, what should we change? How should we change it? So you have issues of legality, more making things illegal, taking things that were illegal, and making them legal. Second, you have things like regulation, uh, f the market, Wall Street, how many rules should there be about how you trade, how money passes hands, etc., how little rules, how when you have no rules, do people abuse the system? When you regulate it, do you stifle the very explosive growth that makes people's lives better? These are all questions people have been wrestling with, obviously for a long, long time, but it's all part of the process. Or think about our involvement around the world. Uh, President Clinton has often talked about the regret of not going into Rwanda when there was a genocide there in 1994. So you have one president saying, there was a, tor a horrible tragedy and we didn't go in soon enough. But then we have the president, after President Clinton, President Bush, who went into Iraq, and to this day we're still talking about the disaster of going in. And then we had the, the giant question for President Obama, do you go into Syria? What would the Syrian president have to do for us to get involved? Well, he'd have to use chemical weapons. Oh, he used chemical weapons. Well. Then do we go in, and you have lots of people saying, oh my word, we're war-weary. Iraq, Afghanistan, really, we're now going to go into Sir Syria? How's that going to go? And then what will it be after Syria? And so you can see how a previous decision affects the decision now. You can see after uh, Vietnam how many people in America were like, let's not do that again. So all of this is the tension at the heart of the political process. How do we organize 
our common life together. When do we have too many rules? When do we not have enough rules? When are we too involved around the world? When are we not involved enough? When are we regulating things too much and we are stifling? Well, for example, we're making it too hard for small businesses to expand. And when are we not regulating enough and people are abusing the free market and we end up with something like the housing crash? These are all the tensions at the heart of a shared life together. So that tension, the fact that you're even having the discussion, is good. Now, one more idea. We've talked about the tension. We've talked about compromise. We've talked about convictions and what people call flip-flopping. Now, one more idea, and this idea is the idea of the loyal opposition. Imagine if there was one person who said, this is what we're doing. We're making this much salsa. This many people are going to have it. And everybody went, okay. And imagine that person said, you, you're going to go down the mountain. You go that direction. You go that direction. What if there was one person in the group who every idea they had about what to do with the moose, the rutabagas, the yuccas, and the salsa, we all just unquestioningly said yes. And whatever they suggested, we went along with without any question or discussion. And what if they had a couple of people, they had a wingman, they had people who executed their decisions. And what if there, all there was was them dictating what we all do there on the side of the mountain? We all say, no way, that wouldn't be the best thing for the group, right? The best thing for the group is everybody at some level in on making the decisions. Because what if they came up with an idea that was a terrible idea and there's no one to say, well, have you thought about this? Uh, no, we hadn't. What if they said, let's all do this? And he said, what if we take the tomatoes and pass them around one by one and each person takes a bite out of the tomato and then passes it along? And they were like, that's our plan. And we were like, that's a terrible idea. So what you need there on the side of the mountain is you need every idea to be challenged. Is this the best idea? Everything to be tested. So whoever is making the decisions, it's absolutely necessary that there is somebody there asking difficult questions and critiquing and pushing back and saying, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? If you lose that tension, you have lost something vital to the best interests of the group. So there is this tradition of the loyal opposition. And the loyal opposition are the people who are there, not out of anger or spite, but out of commitment to the greater good. And the loyal opposition is the group that just asks the tough questions, that pushes back. They're not there simply to be obstacles. They're there to help make sure that the decisions that are made are the best possible decisions. So they push back and they question and they challenge in order to keep things fresh and smart. They're there to make sure that all the options are considered. They're there to make sure no one gets left out. They're not there to make sure that the other party doesn't succeed at all costs. They're there to make sure that everybody together moves forward. By the way, just go on YouTube and look up British Parliament Q&A with the Prime Minister. That is the loyal opposition in action. And it's so 
well, it's absolutely entertaining, but it's fantastic to watch. Um, I don't know if it's like to live there, but fantastic to watch. The loyal opposition is absolutely necessary. So when someone's like, we should just get rid of the two parties. We should just have one party of smart people. No. One party of smart people would become one party of controlling people, would become one party of complacent people. You want at least two parties. How about three or four or five? Because that's how you keep things fresh. Those of you who have a partner you're journeying through your life with, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Think of how many messes you'd be in if it was just you without this person saying, uh, hold on a minute. So the loyal opposition in summary is simply, hold on a minute. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? If you eliminate one final thought, if you eliminate the tension from our shared life together, the give and take, the push and pull, the feedback, the critique. If you eliminate the tension and you just hand everything to one group of people, you'll end up with some form of fascism. Somebody just saying, this is what we're going to do, and that's very scary. If you eliminate the tension the other direction, nobody eats and the potholes don't get fixed and you have serious, serious problems. And at some point you turn the knob and there's no water in your faucet. Make sense? Like you don't organize things and you have chaos and really basic needs aren't met. So there is this tension in the middle. Many people say, um, if you respect the law, don't watch it being made. Other people talk about the lawmaking a bit like sausage making. No matter how good it tastes, you don't want to see it being made. But here's the thing. The sausage making means that you actually have something. Now here's what I find interesting. Think about how many movies are about this. Like the Hunger Games. What is the thing lurking underneath the Hunger Games? There is a president who isn't opposed. And when there's a president who's not opposed, when there's a power structure that has no loyal opposition, has nobody keeping it in check, you have inevitably some form of oppression. So what does uh, like a novel series, like a series of novels like The Hunger Games tap into? Somebody always has to stand up as a loyal opposition. Or think about every movie that we are still making about the Nazis. We are still haunted by the idea of power without a loyal opposition to keep it in check. It is a terror, a fear that lurks deep in our bones because it's very real. And so this frustrating, maddening, sometimes clown circus of a democracy that we have is actually absolutely necessary and vital because you have all of these voices that get to speak up. When you don't have that, you end up with naked brute power in service to itself, and it's terrifying, and it's dehumanizing, and it always goes to bad places. So in a democracy, it's messy, and it's awkward, and lots of people speak up who are annoying at times. Literally, there's somebody running for president right now that I joke with my kids, this person was invented by the universe to annoy me. And the problem is, I live in a democracy, and that's what you're going to get. People who make you crazy, but it's part of it. The tension is good. Now, 
Let's think about this spiritually for a moment. Think about your life. Think about the things that didn't go how you wanted them to go. Think about the times when somebody was in your way. Think about the times when you knew exactly what needed to be done, and yet for some reason you were part of something where you all had to get there together. It was frustrating. It was maddening. And sometimes actually institutions lose their way, and it's crazy, and it really is just bureaucracy, and it really is mindless awfulness. But think about your personal life, things that were beyond your control that caused you pain. The struggle made you into who you are, made you better. It was the push and pull that actually shaped your character. It's the voices that didn't tell you what you wanted to hear that actually helped you grow up. That's how, that's how it's been for me. It's the times when I was like, okay, everybody, let's right now. Let's go here. And somebody was like, wait, have you thought about this? And I was like, ah, oh, crap, so-and-so speaking up. And then you actually listen to what they're saying, and you're so pissed that they're in your way. And then you actually, over time, realize that they saved you from going off a cliff. It's the situations where you couldn't simply enforce your will that actually, in the end, made you and the thing you were a part of better. Not always, but often. The struggle and the tension at a deep spiritual level, it's what shaped you. Think about it with when parents, uh, when you're raising kids, you want things to go well for your kids, but you don't want them to go too well. You know what I mean? Like, you don't want it to be too easy. We'll even say about certain people, or especially children of the rich, we're always like, wow, it's going to be tough for them. No, it isn't. It's easy for them. Exactly. That's why it's tough, right? If somebody doesn't have to work another day in their life, is that necessarily always a good thing? So think about kids you know growing up with endless resources, and you think, wow, it's really nice, but, but they're going to have to, and their parents, they're going to have to intentionally put themselves in situations where there's a push and a pull, where there's a loyal opposition, where there's struggle. Think about all the books, the movies, the teachings, the things that have moved you and inspired you. It probably came out of some sort of conflict and tension and struggle. So when you think about politics and you roll your eyes at, in many ways, the circus and the shouty match that politics can often become, underneath it all is a good impulse there. It is an awareness that the tension, it keeps it real, it keeps it fresh, it keeps it alive, it keeps it from veering into anarchy or the opposite, which is an oppressive, dictator, fascist, that other thing. Politics is a good word. There is an endless tension at the heart of politics, and it is good and necessary and vital even when it's messy, ugly, annoying, and you just want to throw your remote at the television. Anybody know what I'm talking about? This has been episode two of Politics and Guns. And uh, tomorrow, next episode, part three.